Open your Bibles, if you have them, to John chapter 6, verses 53 to 58 is where we'll be this morning. John chapter 6, verses 53 to 58. Last week we, we talked about baptism, and I think baptism and the Lord's Supper can often be those things that we do quite frequently, but many of us don't understand exactly what it is that we're doing when we take part in them. Or maybe we've gotten so used to doing it that we haven't stopped to ask the question, why am I doing this? Um, Every once in a while, you'll see, probably on Facebook or something like that, uh, a couple that's friends of yours that have reached a milestone in their marriage, maybe 25 years, 50 years, some, some significant mile marker where they begin to renew their vows and they have a renewal of the vows ceremony. You've probably seen pictures of these where they get away with their children. Usually lots of children, lots of grandkids are there this time as they witness the renewal of the vows of the two people that they've known as parents for some time. They come together and they say the same, pretty much the same vows that they said back when they first did them the first time. This time, usually it's on a beach or some place really nice like that. Um, and they renew their vows. They, they recommit to one another. And they leave just as married as they were when they got there. But this time, everybody is with the understanding that what was true of them and their marriage some years ago is still true to this day and will be true until the day they die. This is the ninth sermon in our series on worship, where we're considering the Lord's Supper. What does it mean to participate in the Lord's Supper? What is it that we're doing here? For those of you that may be visiting with us, um, this is not our normal process of going through a series like this, but we've been through a series on worship for the summer, and we'll be wrapping it up here in just a couple of weeks. Normally, our, we've been going through the book of Matthew, and it served us well to just stop for a second in the book of Matthew and consider the elements of our worship service, why we do the things that we do. There, I have, since I've been here and, and, and even in previous churches, I've received more questions on the Lord's Supper and baptism than just about any other thing that the church does. People are naturally pretty curious about it. It's one of the reasons that we provided the books that we have in the foyer. They're free of charge. You can go out there and you can get them uh, books on baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're very short, very easy to read, but will hopefully explain and answer some of those questions. Some of them we're going to address this morning as well. With all of that in mind, let's look at the passage of Scripture that is sitting before us. John chapter 6, verses 53 and following. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is not the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
we ask that you give us wisdom and understanding as we seek to understand your text and apply it to our lives. We know the complications that lie in this text are so difficult sometimes to understand and to wrap our minds around. That's why we require your help to understand it. We pray that we feel the presence of the Spirit that is already here amongst us and within us. In Jesus' name, amen. In our text this morning, Jesus is saying something actually really pretty complicated. And it's, it's very strange, it seems like. And so strange, in fact, that the audience that's listening to Jesus teach on this is growing all the more frustrated. The questions that we ask every week as we seek to understand the text that is before us is really pretty simple. We always ask the same questions, and it's no different this morning. What is he talking about in the text What does that mean, and why does that, in the end, matter to me? This week is no different, but because Jesus is using a lot of very symbolic language and a lot of very strange language, it's going to take some effort to dig through so that we can understand it and wrap our minds around it. Now, if a a Jew who thinks that Jesus was just a crazy rabbi and a Christian who believes in Jesus as the Messiah, were to come to this text in John 6, with the Spirit's help, of course, they could both sit down and understand what Jesus is saying in John 6. However, they would come to the truth of the text probably from different directions. Let me explain. So first, let's understand something about the context that this passage is occurring in. If you go all the way back in your text to verse 4, Chapter 6, verse 4, John tells us that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So you'll recall the Passover feast of the Jews, which is the the Jewish uh, festival that was celebrated every year and was inaugurated at the beginning with a day of preparation. And what's typically called the Passover meal. Paschal meal, sometimes you'll hear it called. Nowadays, you'll often hear it called the Seder meal. Basically, the meal kicks off a week-long Passover feast. And so the reason for the celebration of the Passover feast was to remember the original meal that the Jews celebrated as they were leaving Egypt in the Exodus. So you'll remember that, where God delivered the 10th plague on the Egyptians, the plague of the death of the firstborn son in every household in Egypt. Now, the Jewish babies, the Jewish firstborn sons, were spared that death and that plague because they took the lamb without spot or blemish, they killed it, they took its blood, and they put it on the door on the doorpost of their house. So as the angel of death passed through the encampment, passed through Egypt, He would see the blood on the doorpost of the lamb. And for those that had the blood on the doorpost, he would pass over their houses. Now, the feast is also commonly called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the reason is because the Hebrews were told that not only do you sacrifice the lamb, not only do you kill it, not only do you cook it over a fire, but you also bake unleavened bread. You didn't put yeast in the bread because... Once the Lord killed the firstborn child in every household in Egypt, they were going to have to pick up and leave in a hurry. In fact, the Egyptians were going to drive them out. So they couldn't wait for the bread to rise. 
They didn't have time to put the yeast in, let the bread rise, and cook it. They just had to cook unleavened bread. So with that context in mind, we put on our Jewish glasses for just a second, and we look at John 6, even just the headings and a few verses that are within it, you'll see that Jesus, right there at the beginning, feeds 5,000 people. Well, it's it's way more than 5,000 people, of course, It's 5,000 men. Matthew tells us that it was 5,000 men besides women and children. So Jesus feeds upwards of 15,000, maybe even more people there in that crowd. So Jesus feeds a a crowd of uh, Jews a bunch of bread. And then what happens next in the story? The disciples are making their way across the sea, and Jesus walks on the sea and gives them safe passage across the sea. And then what happens next? The people come out and they find Jesus. And Jesus tells them in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which who's going to provide for them? He says, the Son of Man will provide for you or will give to you. And so the people come seeking Jesus and he says, the Son of Man is going to feed you. He then goes on to tell them that God was the one that gave their fathers manna in the wilderness. So we've got feeding of a bunch of Jews, bread, crossing across the sea, which Jesus gives his people, namely his disciples, safe passage to the other side. Then the discussion that I will feed you bread, the bread of life. And then there's a discussion about the manna in the wilderness there in verse 34. He said, they, they ask him, give us this bread always. And he says, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you won't hunger. So needless to say, the talk of eating and drinking in this passage is set in the context of the original Passover where there was a feasting on bread, then passage across the sea, that time the Red Sea as it parted, and then there was provision by God of manna, the original bread of life in the wilderness. Here, Jesus provides the bread for the people. He then leads them across the sea, then compares himself to both the Father who provided the bread originally in verse 27. The Son of Man, he says, will give you bread. And then he compares himself to the manna itself, which is provided for the people. He says, I am the bread of life. So not only is Jesus telling us that he is the new and better Moses, leading his people out from under the yoke of slavery to sin. But he says that he's the bread of life. Unlike the manna, which only satisfied their hunger temporarily, he will satisfy the spiritual hunger of righteousness perpetually, which is what he says in verse 35. So a Jew will read John 6. If he's inclined to believe Jesus, the Spirit is working on his heart, A Jew would read John 6 as Jesus talking about himself being the fulfillment of the Passover. In fact, throughout John, you'll see him tell you about a number of holidays and festivals that the Jews were were celebrating that Jesus ultimately fulfills. And so a Christian, though, as we approach this text, we'll read this and we can't help but think of 
the elements of the Lord's Supper. Eating His body, drinking His blood. At the Lord's Supper, Jesus takes the elements, the, the, the Last Supper, the original one, with the disciples before He goes to the cross. He takes the elements of the Passover meal, the unleavened bread and the wine, and He updates them for a new covenant. He says, this do in remembrance of me. So the passage that we're looking at this morning is, is, is Jesus talking about the Lord's Supper exactly? Well, no, not exactly. He hasn't given them the Lord's Supper just yet like we would celebrate it. He hasn't updated the Passover for their understanding, but he's pointing to himself as the new and better Passover, which is exactly what he does before the disciples in the upper room, before he goes to the cross. But as we read this, it has to inform the way we understand what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper, since we know that these elements that are sitting on the table in front of me have their origin in the Passover to begin with. Also, we're going to say when we take the Lord's Supper that the bread and the juice on the table in front of us is the body and blood of Jesus. What do we mean when we say that? Do we mean that the bread and the juice physically transform into the body and blood of Jesus? That's what the Roman Catholics teach and believe. That the body and blood of Jesus is literally there in the bread and the wine. So much so that if the priest were to spill the wine on the floor, he would have to lick it up because it is literally the blood of Christ. Is that what we mean when we say eat the body, drink the blood? A lot of you are probably thinking, I hope not. <laughs> what does this taking of the Lord's Supper actually mean, and why do we do it? So a Jew would look at this passage one way from a Passover perspective, the Christian from another from the Lord's Supper perspective, but both are coming to the same conclusion if they understand Jesus rightly. So with that being said, the context of our passage is really important if we want to understand what Jesus is saying. Now for the Christian audience that is in front of me, there are two main points that I want us to see about how this passage informs our taking of the Lord's Supper. First, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our confession. The Lord's Supper reminds us of our confession. Last week we looked at baptism and there were three main things that I said about baptism last week. First, in baptism we are confessing belief in the triune God and Jesus Christ as our substitute. We are confessing that when we get in the waters of baptism. Second, we are changing our lifestyle by repenting of sin and walking in newness of life, pledging to walk in newness of life. And third, we are committing to a community of believers around us, to the church body. And we're receiving from the church body initiation, if you will, or welcoming into the church body through forgiveness of sin. Now, with that in mind, what I think you're going to see in the Lord's Supper is that we're essentially continually reminding ourselves of those same things in the Lord's Supper and that that's what Jesus is cluing us in on. So in this passage, the group of people are growing frustrated with Jesus. Look there in verse 41. They grumble about it. 
Then if you look in verse 52, they dispute about it. And then if you look in 60 and 61, Jesus says they're taking offense at him. And then in verse 66, they leave. So in verse 52, as they're obviously getting confused by Jesus, Jesus says they're, they're disputing or they're disputing about him. They're asking the question, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's insane. Jesus doesn't sort that out right away. He actually kind of throws some more complications into the mix there in verse 53. And he says, don't forget about drinking my blood too. You left that part out. Don't just eat my flesh. You, you have to drink my blood too. Now, you know a Jew, they don't eat blood, much less drink it. They drain everything out. So for someone to say to them, eat my flesh and drink my blood is tantamount to anathema. Not only are they confused, but probably some are getting ready to do something to him, I would imagine. So what does he mean here in verse 54? He doubles down on the language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And then he says that your participation in what seems to amount to cannibalism, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, determines whether you have eternal life or not. Well, if you want to understand verse 54, I think you have to compare it to verse 40. Because verse 40 is, I think, not only the parallel to verse 54, 54, but explains its meaning. And so what I'm going to do is put those, I'm not going to do it, somebody else is going to do it, but they're going to put the verses, uh, verse 40 and 54, up on the screen together at one time so you can see the parallel nature of these verses. Verse 54 says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 40 says, everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the last parts, which are up there in blue, are essentially the exact same minus one mood change in a Greek verb. That's about it. But the, so other than that, they're pretty much identical. The first part is the only thing that changes. And I think verse 40 is meant to explain what he means in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood. What does that mean? It means everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him. Everyone who looks on the Son of Man and believes in him. That's the explanation for verse 54. So I think we can definitively say that to feed on Jesus' flesh and to drink his blood is a visual image for looking on the Son and believing in Him. So Jesus tells them that. He gives them that. He clues them in already. 14 verses prior. So I think we can rule out a couple of things. One is really obvious. The second is maybe less obvious. The first, the thing that we can rule out is that Jesus literally means to eat His flesh and drink His blood. I think we can rule that out from the, even the context of this passage. The second thing I think we can rule out is probably more important. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to be raised up on the last day, I think we can rule out that you have to participate in the Lord's Supper in order to have eternal life. 
Now, the reason that I think that's important to clarify is because the Roman Catholic Church does teach that. That in order to have eternal life, in order to be granted into heaven, you have to receive the communion that the church gives to you. Now, not only do we, can we go back to the thief on the cross as a great example of someone who never took part in the Lord's Supper, but many other instances where that wouldn't be the case. It seems that it is belief. Belief is what constitutes inclusion in the group that Jesus is going to raise up on the last day. It's belief that is feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. Now, when you read through chapter 6 of John, you will see just how many times Jesus uses the word belief or believe to make himself clear that it's belief that he is after. Belief in the heart of the one that would partake. Belief is what gives you eternal life. So let's first interpret this like a good first century Jew, like would be John's original audience. Let's say we rightly celebrate the Passover meal every year, and we sit down, we read John 6, and we get the clue that what Jesus is telling us, he's speaking right to us, and he says, hey, you, you group of people that celebrate the Passover, you're you're eating the unleavened bread, you're drinking the wine of the Passover, and you're including yourself in the people of God. You're reminding yourself of the bread they ate before the Exodus. You're reminding yourself of the manna they ate as they journeyed around the wilderness. But if you really want to be included in God's people, you'll believe that the broken bread that you're eating at the Passover is representative of my broken body that is on the cross that you will look on the Son of Man as He is crucified before you, as His blood is shed, which is symbolic of that wine that you're drinking, that blood that's poured out on Calvary. And it's only through looking on the Son of Man on the cross and believing that that is your atonement that you can actually be delivered from the yoke of slavery, of sin and death, and be led out in the ultimate exodus. See, the ultimate meaning of the Passover is that the bread of the table represents the physical body of Jesus, and the wine at the table represents his blood. And so if you take Jesus at his words here in John 6, then your mind has to be drawn to what he says at the Last Supper before he goes to the cross. This is my body. This is my blood. And realize that he's saying the same thing here. It seems then that what we said was true of baptism. That when you get in the water, you're confessing your belief in the triune God. That you're confessing your association with the death and resurrection of Jesus is also true of the Lord's Supper. That coming to the Lord's table is a confession of belief. You're associating with that same thing. I want to remind you that last week I said that in our confession in baptism, we are acknowledging the work of the triune Godhead. And we we saw that Paul was laying out, here's the way God is at work in your own salvation. So we're recognizing 
in last week in baptism. We're recognizing that God the Father has ultimately saved us. And I said we come up out of the water and we're putting our faith that one day he will raise us from the dead. That by the power of God we'll be resurrected from the dead. So the Father is at work in our salvation. We're obviously confessing Christ as we get in the water of baptism who died on our behalf. We're associating with his death. Christ absorbed the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. And we're associating that with with his death and resurrection. said we're confessing that the Holy Spirit has circumcised our heart that we may genuinely believe and we may genuinely come to faith. But if you look at the context of what Jesus is saying here in John chapter 6, He's applying all the same work of the triune Godhead here in believing and taking of the Lord's Supper. Believing and confessing. Go back to John 6, 44-47. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. So how does he say in verse 44, one is raised up on the last day? Well, first he says the Father draws this person. Then the Father teaches this person. And then the person hears the Father's teaching and comes to Jesus in belief. And the person who comes to Jesus, he says in verse 47, has eternal life. Or you might say is raised on the last day. That's literally what Jesus says there in 44 to 47. But then look at verse 63. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So the one who eats the flesh and drinks his blood, the one who believes, does so because they are given life by the Holy Spirit, is what he says there in verse 63. The flesh is no help at all. In other words, the hearts have been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. He tells them that plainly. And he tells them that although he has spoken to them words that are spirit and life, he says in 664, many of you have heard those words and you don't believe. You're going to walk away. But he's explaining to you the reason why. The reason why is because the Spirit, he says in verse 63, has not circumcised their heart. He has not given them life. And so he's explaining why they walk away. And then he, he turns to them again in verse 66. The, um, he says that they haven't been drawn by the Father and given life by the Spirit. He not only knows the ones that are his, he knows the ones that are not as well. In fact, he knows one of his own disciples is in their midst who is not one of his, who is a devil, he says. In other words, in spite of what you're going to see in verse 66, where all these people start turning around and leaving Jesus, Jesus hasn't lost control. He knows exactly what's going on. But then look at what he says in verse 65. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. The Father drawing and teaching the individual and the Spirit giving the person life brings him to faith in whom? In Christ, who is the object of his faith. 
So eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ is the symbol of heartfelt belief in the triune God of creation and belief in the atoning work of Christ. So every time we partake in the Lord's Supper, the eating the body, drinking the blood of Christ, you're confessing the same thing you confessed at your baptism. That, that God has redeemed you. That He has bought you for Christ. That the Spirit has circumcised your heart. You're confessing those same things again. The Lord's Supper reminds us of our confession. The second thing that I want you to see in this passage about the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper reminds us of our commitment. Look at verse 56. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. See, he switches from the future focused, I will raise him up on the last day, to now he talks about the present. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me presently, currently, and I in him presently and currently. Well, the word abiding is one that probably is familiar to you, particularly if you read through the New Testament. John is pretty fond of it through his gospel um, and also his epistle, namely 1 John. But what does it mean to abide in Christ? How do we know if we're abiding in Christ? How do I know if daily I'm, yes, I am abiding in Christ? Well, John slash Jesus tells us in John 15, 10. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So what I think he's getting at is that to eat the body and drink the blood of Christ is to believe. That's clear. It was St. Augustine that once said to eat is to believe. But to believe is to carry on in obedience to Christ's commands. That's what it means to abide in Him. You're carrying on in Christ's commands. So when you eat the cracker and drink the juice, Jesus is not saying to you, you have to do this, and if you don't do this, if you don't eat this cracker and drink this juice, then you don't have eternal life. He's saying that you believe. That's what's required. However, the Lord's Supper, while it is symbolic of the eating of the body and drinking of the blood, it is a reminder to us every single week that we take it, that we are confessing the triune God in, and confessing Christ in His atoning work, and we are committing our lives to obedience. We're committing to walking in obedience. In taking the Lord's Supper, we're symbolically eating the Lord's body and drinking His blood, and it reminds us of what He meant when He told us to eat His body and drink His blood. To believe in Him. But it's participating in abundant life. Because we're not only confessing that, we're coming forward committing to a life of repentance and obedience. So the Lord's table is, is meant to remind us of our confession and our commitment that we made in baptism. So we saw last week that baptism is how the Christian goes public with his or her confession and association with Christ. And then the Lord's Supper follows that. And the Lord's Supper does not and has never preceded believers' baptism. Never. For the same reason that you can't make the vow before you can renew it. Or you have to make the vow before you can renew it. You can't renew the vow until you've made it. 
In Acts 2, 41 and 42, the people receive the word and they're baptized and then they take the Lord's Supper. In the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which this church has adopted as its statement of faith about baptism, it says this about baptism. Being a church ordinance, it is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. This is why we, when we do the Lord's Supper, have to be careful about saying very explicitly who can and cannot take it. See, we don't believe, as I said last week, in infant baptism. We don't believe that infant baptism is biblical baptism. And so we require that one be baptized before he or she partakes in the Lord's Supper. When a couple renews their vows, they're not leaving the ceremony any more married than they were when they got there. In fact, really nothing has changed at all. In fact, a couple could go through their whole life, as most do, and never have a renewal of vows ceremony. And that's perfectly acceptable, and most cases expected. But why do some people have a renewal of vows? Because it reminds them and others that what we said at the altar, we meant. See, when we come together as brothers or sisters in Christ, by taking the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves and each other that what I said in the waters of baptism, I meant. That I am confessing Christ as the only substitute for my sins. I am confessing belief in the triune God. I am committing to live my life in faithfulness to Him. But you see, this is precisely why the church celebrated the Lord's Supper for the first 1,800 years of church history, celebrated the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. Because it forces us to come to the table and to reckon with what we said in the waters of baptism every single week. It's a reminder to all those in the body of Christ that we have committed our lives to Him and to Him alone. You'll probably notice in the text of John chapter 6 that it's this teaching that begins to define the body of true disciples. Notice what happens at the beginning. Jesus feeds 5,000 people Upwards of 15,000 individuals. Bread. He just multiplies it there for them. But how many are left by the end of the chapter? Eleven. The twelve disciples are there. They seem to be the only ones left at the end of the chapter. And Jesus says, and one of you is a devil. We go from 15,000 to eleven when it comes to confessing the triune God, when it comes to confessing Christ, when it comes to committing to live a life of obedience to Him, most people are out. That's not what we want. In fact, I can almost guarantee you what this means to you is that if you commit to live a life of obedience to Christ, many, many people are going to call you weird if we commit to that as a church body, many people are going to go, hey, it's so serious over there so many times. 
But this is coming from the same man that told you if sin besets you, cut your right hand off. Gouge out your eye. He sounds pretty serious. Maybe that's an indication of how we should understand it. Belief is required. But it's this kind of belief and this kind of commitment. But what does it also mean for us? See, the Lord's table is meant to confront us in sin, not repel us. Understand that. The Lord's table is meant to confront us in sin, not repel us. So if you're sitting there in the pews and you're thinking, man, I struggle so mightily with sin. I can only think of that. I can't even sit here in the worship service and really truly sing these songs. I can't listen to this sermon. I can't take the Lord's Supper because of how much sin I just see ever before me. That's precisely why the table is here. It's meant to confront you. It's meant to say, recommit your life today. Repent of your sin now and come and partake. Don't hold on to the sin so that you can walk out not having taken of the Lord's Supper. That's not the intention. The intention is come to the Lord in repentance and faith and belief that it's not your righteousness that allows you a seat at the table. It's Christ's righteousness that welcomed you to the table. And it's only because of that that you can have a seat. And if it was because of your actions, we would all just die right here. So don't use sin as an excuse not to partake. Instead, confront it. Repent of it. Confess it to the Lord and turn from it. But it's also a sign to those who have never believed never confess their faith before the church body through baptism, our taking of the Lord's Supper is really trying to set your sin before you. Take a moment and consider what we're saying about Christ. That a real man 2,000 years ago who claimed to be fully God and fully man lived on this earth, lived a perfect life, and died as a substitute for the wrath that you deserved. So that by faith, you could have his rewards of his perfect life. Bat that around in your mind for a little bit. Consider what Christians are claiming Christ actually did. Don't think about all the other questions you have about Scripture Don't think about Jonah. Don't think about creation. Don't think about any of that yet. Spoiler alert, they happened. Okay, but just don't think about that yet. Consider first, Christ. Did he die and rise again? If he didn't, all of us are most to be pitied. But if he did, consider what you're saying right now in your unbelief. Confess Christ as Lord, be baptized, and take the Lord's Supper with us. It reminds us every week that this is the point of why we're here, to confess our faith in Christ and to commit to a life of following Christ. We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to pray first. I want to have our deacons that are going to be passing out the elements come forward and begin distributing it to each other first so that we can then begin to partake of the Lord's Supper after this is over, or after the prayer is over. So join with me in prayer as our deacons come forward. Heavenly Father, 
I pray for us as a body that as we see the elements that are sitting before us, that if we didn't confess our sins before in our worship service, that we would now. That we would begin thinking about what it means for us. Thinking about how it is that we're partaking of this, these elements. About what it is that we're saying. What it is that we're confessing. Or that if there be any bitterness or disunity or frustration or anger harbored in our heart toward other believers in this congregation, that we would confess it to you and to each other and bury it by the blood of Christ. Lord, we know the warnings repeated in Scripture of taking the Lord's Supper improperly, failing to consider our own life. Pray that none of us in this room would do that. Allow us to rest on your mercy to be confronted by your cross and to submit wholly to your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.